Good afternoon. My name is Andrea Petu, and I'm here at the CEU podcast studio. And this is the podcast of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences Subcommittee on the History of the Second World War. And today's guest is Erla Hulla Haldorsdottir, who is um, a lecturer in history at the Faculty of History and Philosophy at the University of Iceland. She is the co-editor of Saga, the Journal of the History and Society. And the reason why we are talking today is that uh, she has a great project entitled In the Wake of Suffrage, Icelandic Women as Cultural and Political Agents, 1915-2015, funded by Rannis, the Icelandic Research Fund. And this project uh, gives us the opportunity to discuss uh, how to write gender history, women's history, what are the major challenges, and uh, to connect it with uh, the history of Iceland, especially uh, during the British and the American occupation. So thank you very much, Erla, joining to us. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for uh, inviting me to speak to you. So what are the major challenges of uh, writing gender history as far as this uh, project is concerned? So what are the major questions you are asking? Well, the core question of the project is uh, when and how women became legitimate uh, agents in society. Uh, in, in Iceland uh, after they won the vote in 1915. Uh, that is to, to say how they managed or, or didn't manage to become um, real actors in society in the sense that they it, it took a very long time to, to enter parliament. We had only one woman entering parliament in 1922 and, and then there were very few throughout well, until the early 1980s, and women didn't uh, get to the high politics or offices in society, but they were always struggling, always trying to get into the structures of society to find ways to influence society. And we just, uh, what we want to explore in this project is what ways they used to shall we say, enable themselves to get influence and to uh, have effect on decision-making without being in the high politics. Because we have tended, in not only in, in Iceland, but in, in history in general, to focus too much on, on those who had, you know, the real power. We focus on on those women that, you know, got into high politics or got into positions in, in society, but we have less, we have studied less those women that were always working there in the uh, grassroots and had influence there. So basically the innovative element of this uh, project is that you are moving away from this um, elite perspective of uh, writing uh, women's history and you are looking at women as agents and uh, their ways of construction of subjectivity. That's easier to say than to do. So what kind of sources are there available to work on this? 
we have been interested in and and already started using um, what we can uh, well we, we can describe them as biographical sources live writing perhaps we have been using uh, memoirs of women we have been using uh, also private materials as letters and and diaries but we have also been using in in our most recent findings um, official documents concerning, for instance, poor relief, where we can find, uh, well, as a matter of fact, one of the things that have been a bit surprising for us, the extent, should we say, of the restrictions that followed the vote, how women, and not only women, also men, but we think that this uh, affected women more severely, how, how people were restricted and not enabled to vote because they had been uh, given or, or they had received poor relief and not paid back. And we have personal, several personal, very interesting and, and really fascinating histories about that. And that helps us to to understand how very differently people, women in our case, experienced the right to vote being uh, women in the lower sections of society. It was very different from women higher up in society who saw the right to vote as a way to to influence uh, society and and get some power while perhaps women in the lower levels of society well they wanted of course the vote but there were other things that mattered more to them perhaps so so we have been quite preoccupied with uh, exploring this uh, these restrictions and thus using those personal this personal material available well i I was just going to add that we have also been using uh, quite much of uh, material from journals and magazines that women were publishing uh, really throughout the history, uh, th- throughout the century. Not only not all the journals or magazines published uh, at the same time, but there is, a, can we say, there is a line in it. There is a constant flow of journals, and in there, all kinds of women are writing about uh, what they want to do in society, how they want to embatter it. And it's very interesting to read that because you can see and you can hear, if we can talk about, uh, if we can say that reading sources, we are hearing the voices of the of the past, we can hear the voices of, of a very different, um, or it, th- there is a diversity of women that are speaking in these journals. So that's very interesting to, to see. And I, I have been fascinated by, by these sources. The history of uh, sec- the Second World War in Iceland is basically uh, an occupational history. And that's a very controversial one. So I was wondering if you can share with us the uh, problems, the key questions uh, regarding the British and the American occupation of Iceland during the Second World War. This is, as you say, a complicated uh, history. And and I should say immediately that I am not an expert, but I can give you these uh, few facts. So it was really, Iceland uh, was a part of Denmark when World War II started in, in 1939. And immediately it became clear that Iceland, because of its geographical uh, position in the North Atlantic, it was uh, quite important 
because you had the ship convoys uh, going from America to the Soviet Union, going this route, and there were ships coming from the UK also. So it uh, so it was very important. And when uh, and the Brits, they quite soon wanted to, and they offered the Icelandic government to take on the defences of the country. But uh, the Icelandic government wanted to be uh, neutral, as in World War One. Uh, but after uh, the Germans, the Nazis has invaded, had invaded both Denmark and Norway, uh, the British couldn't wait anymore. And they, well, we cannot, we should not say perhaps invaded, we talk about the just occupation. So they came unexpected and occupied Iceland in May 1940. And this is what we call a friendly occupation, and people were, quite many were just relieved. These are the Brits, not the Germans. The Americans took over in 1941, and they stayed here until, well, more or less 1947. This is, as I say, quite complicated story, because when the World War II ended, there was this question about what to do with the base, the facilities that the U.S. Army had uh, built, where the Icelandic International Airport is, is now, and quite quite many know. And they, um, this was very debated in Iceland because Iceland wanted to be neutral, and some people said, well, if we have an army in the country, we are not a sovereign uh, state. We did not, of course, have our own army. Iceland is a very small country, the population in 1940 was only 120,000 people. So you can see how very small it is. But in the end, the Americans, after after they had left in 1947, they came back in 1951, then Iceland has had joined NATO. So we had a NATO base here in Iceland, really. It's, you know, and it's connected to the Cold War and the politics be between east and west, um, so so we had this NATO base here from 1951 with American soldiers until 2006. So it was here for a quite a long time, and this has well since the occupation in 1940, the uh, the fact that we had an army here for all those decades, just with few years interval. It has, of course, evoked questions and, and historians have been studying that about really how independent the country was. We declared independence from Denmark in 1944 and became the Republic of, of, of Iceland. But um, having a NATO base here for decades, some people would say, well, how did that, for instance, affect uh, the foreign policy? Of Iceland, so this has been one of the. This has been an issue and and a topic of research for quite many scholars throughout the years. The history of occupation, the occupation of the British and uh, American troops, has got an aspect which is uh, not necessarily researched in the past decades, and that's the history of intimate relations between the soldiers and the Icelandic women. I wonder if you can uh, share your insights about this research, the problems of the research, and what do we know about these relationships. Yes, this is a very interesting uh, story. We know quite a lot about these relationships and they, can we say, began almost immediately. 
with the British occupation. And as the Icelandic uh, government and, and quite many Icelanders became very uh, worried immediately. What the authorities did was to put on a new legislation which made the age of, well, the, the legal age of people uh, higher in order to be able to detect, uh, well, to, to really spy on, because these were spyings, to spy on and, and to, to uh, control the behavior of, of women under 18 and, and 20. Uh, the laws were supposed to take into consideration both uh, men, uh, well, young boys and, and young girls, but in, in fact, it was only the women that were being affected. Women were arrested, they were examined, and some young girls were, were put, uh, they were uh, moved outside of Reykjavik to some kind of, well, these were not prisons, but home for girls that didn't behave rightly. And we can, of course, say if we have young girls that are 12 or 13 or 14 even, you need to do something about that. But the fact is that that women, uh, adult women, women that were, some of them just were having love affairs, others were having perhaps just one night stand, or, or perhaps some some of them were were making some profit out of it, if we put it that way. But uh, these women were judged very harshly uh, in society. Quite many of them had children, both with British soldiers and then later on the, the American ones. And these children were, many of them had hard times in their upbringing. And this is very interesting because this is, um, this was a friendly occupation. This is not the same as, for instance, in, in Denmark, where, where women that uh, had affairs with the Nazis were just, just very harshly. In Austria, too, I, I think, because we have one of the studies that have been uh, made in, in, on this topic is actually have, has been done recently by a young scholar who finished her master's thesis at the University of Vienna, and she was actually comparing the uh, how people perceived of or, or, or how how people judged uh, women in Austria uh, during the Second World War and comparing it to Iceland. And she has been using, for instance, theories of of moral panic to explore this uh, particular event in, in Icelandic history and arguing that during these difficult times, uh, women and these in particular one young women, they became somehow the scapegoats for people to blame because everyone was afraid. And, and as we know from scholarly work, also women have for so long been considered to be the door keepers for, you know, the uh, for the nation to keep up the culture, the language, language, etc. So women that were sleeping around with British or American soldiers, they were accused of betraying Icelandic nationality. And if they would continue to do so, the Icelandic nation would just collapse. The newly independent Icelandic nation. So this is uh, this is a topic that that has been quite uh, much explored. But there are also, there are more, and there is an increasing interest, again, in these issues, uh, in particular uh, among younger people, young women, young scholars that want to go into this 
history. What kind of sources are available about the children who were born from the relationship between the occupying soldiers and the uh, Icelandic women? What kind of sources are available? Well, the official documents uh, most often just state who is the father, etc. But what happened with so many of these children is that, uh, particular, I think, uh, concerning the Americans, was that they perhaps were sent away or they just left and women sometimes just knew the name of the father or, or well, had perhaps pictures, but, but they couldn't somehow, they didn't know how to find them. And for many years, for decades really, people didn't know the ways how to find them because the army, they, the army, if I remember correctly, the American army, they paid some what's it called, dispensation, that they, they paid some amount for those children, but uh, for the mothers to be able to, you know, maintain to because it was very hard if you didn't have some breadwinner. But what has happened in perhaps the past 20, 30, 20, 25 years is that people have been seeking for and finding their fathers or grandfathers in the States men that were thought to be lost or having or, or that they had died perhaps in the second world war and actually one one of my father's sister she had a child with american soldier and it wasn't until around 1990 probably that a grandchild found the soldier again in the states and has since been in contact with the family but you know decades of past and and this was a very difficult time so we have a lot of, we have sources about the children, but the children themselves have perhaps had more difficulty on finding their blood relations. But then, of course, also about, and that is not just about the children, a very interesting sources that has been used in the newest uh, studies into this era is that our uh, um, are the sources that this, well, there was um, in line with the laws that I mentioned earlier that were set in, in 1941, I think it was, on, on the, where, where the government tried to control the behavior of women in particular. A special youth court was set. And in this, it was in this court that you could uh, interrogate young women and even uh, sentence them. And this material is now, uh, well, not everyone can go and see it because it has so many personal information, but scholars can now study this material. And it is huge about all kinds of, of women. And there are lists of, there is a, there is a, at the National Archives, there is a, a particular book or an archive that, that uh, a female police officer kept uh, with, there are about, there are names from, well, the names of about 500 women she was spying on. So, you know, these are sources that historians can, can use, but these are protected sources in order to, you know, protect the privacy of the people that that was involved. But this is really so. So we have quite a lot of sources, but still we would like to find some of the more of the perhaps women that were well affected by the most severe that were part of this youth 
caught. That would be interesting. But there has have also been some studies done on an, a film, if I remember correctly, perhaps 25 years ago, where a scholar, uh, anthropologist, she, she interviewed women that had moved to the States during and, and after the war with their American soldiers. And, and that was a heartbreaking history, really, because it was so difficult for them because they were so, so harshly judged. Women are always supposed to behave within some very limited uh, space. Uh, nowadays, Iceland is called the feminist paradise. So I was wondering, I was wondering that uh, from a, a country which uh, so carefully surveyed the uh, behavior of women uh, during uh, British and then American occupation, how actually this feminist paradise evolved. So your project uh, is working on the subjectivity of um, of women and women's political agency. So I was wondering that how this um, activism and how this uh, uh, agency of the ordinary uh, women actually happened after, after these very difficult circumstances of the Second World War. Women in the late 1940s and early 1950s, uh, well, the society was, of course, quite conservative, still uh, women mainly being uh, categorized as housewives, uh, the man, a man was the breadwinner. But nevertheless, there was some turmoil going on. There were uh, different times were approaching. Women were questioning, uh, in fact, they were questioning their status as uh, as agents in society, they were asking why, what are our rights really? Are we just seen as some extensions of our husbands or can we act as individual uh, citizens? Uh, what are we? And that then slowly this activism that was quite strong and women were uh, women were on, um, how shall we put it, uh, women, even though women were belonged to dif different political parties, those women that uh, were most prominent in society, they worked very well together uh, around the mid-20th century in promoting all kinds of, of issues uh, they thought that were important for women. For instance, um, the ILO's, uh, what was it called, implement of, you know, equal pay uh, in, in the 1950s. So they lobbied together women from the left, women from the right, uh, and that was very, very interesting. And, and they kept on until the, uh, and well, Longer than that, of course, but then we had the new women's movement as elsewhere around 1970. And it was, I would say, during that time that things began to happen more fast, uh, that things began to happen really in, in, in Iceland and moving us towards what is the base for the so-called Icelandic well, the feminist paradise, because we had this wonderful 1970s with the new women's movement, with a radical, with a group of red stockings that were quite radical and made all kinds of populist things. We had the women's strike in 1975, and then we had Vigdís Fimbo elected as the president of Iceland in 1980. And that actually... I have been told is one of the things that, you know, when you tick that box, uh, that is one of the things that puts off, 
was quite high up as a feminist paradise. And then we had in the early 1980s uh, special women's alliances uh, that, uh, we, well, there, there were two, first for municipal uh, women lists only that run for candidacy for municipal uh, elections in, in Reykjavik and, and elsewhere in, in Iceland, and then for parliament. And that changed the political landscape for Icelandic women a lot. And I remember when I was a bit surprised when first as a young scholar going abroad and and people were saying, oh, because that was in the 1990s and the women's alliance were, well, they, they were slowly fading out by then. But people were saying, oh, my God, wow, Iceland, you have special women's lists. And I so often said, and in particular with colleagues from the Nordic countries, and I often said, well, that's great, but why did we need them? And that was because women weren't given the space or to act as political or legitimate citizens in society until they said, well, we have to do it by ourselves because the system, the structure does not allow us to, to get in. But that happened in the end. But I would not say, even though many things are good in Iceland concerning equal rights and feminism, I would not, I'm not prepared to sign that we are feminist paradise yet. Thank you, Erla Hulda Haldorsdottir, who was speaking to us about the project in the wake of suffrage, Icelandic Women as Cultural and Political Agents, 1915-2015, a project which is running at the University of Iceland, funded by Rannis, the Icelandic Research Fund. This is the uh, CEU podcast series on the history of the Second World War, uh, done by the Hungarian Academy of Sciences Subcommittee on History of the Second World War. Thank you, Erla for your uh, contribution. My name is Andrea Petu. Thank you very much. Thank you.